You ever wonder how you got here? How did you, how did you get here? Um, you look back at the circumstances of your life and you could say that uh, they were happy accidents like uh, Bob Ross on making those like, happy little trees as he's painting. Um, there are no happy accidents. The Lord has got a better story to tell. I, I spent uh, the last couple of days in uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts um, for my cousin's funeral and uh, you can look back at the antics of three boys brought up in the uh, streets of, of Marblehead, uh, all football players, all uh, well um, versed in the ways of the Episcopal Church at that time, and all of them hellions. Um, and uh, Richie, who passed, was my, was my hero as a kid. He... Um, he was just one of those guys that had a lot of character and a, a lot of um, zest for life. Yet in the midst of that, we, we ask the, have to ask the questions, the hard questions. How did we get here? Where are we going? How, do, how did you get to where you are today? And where are you going? Are they all mistakes? Or is the Lord allowing you to be in a place where each layer has been curated for his work in and through you. Now, some would say maybe that's self-fulfilling prophecy or coincidence. I just don't think it is. I grew up in a colonial town in Woodbury, Connecticut, and it happens to be uh, where the elite at that point in time hid from the work of the British colony to send the first priest over to England to pursue being ordained as a bishop for the United States. It was a revolutionary thought to have bishops in the states for the colonies. And Samuel Seabury was one of the first who, uh, when rejected by England, went on to Scotland. And in Scotland, he was ordained a bishop and sent back over to the colonies and began the process in a line for which you and I are part of right now, this great Anglican thing that has happened over the years, good and bad and everything in between, right? So I, I thought nothing of it, you know, big deal. Samuel Seabury, you know, was there at a time where the Revolutionary War was on, but then I started to read about what went on in Connecticut and the Great Awakening and, and, and the, the work of people in that area and the, the, the gospel that was going out and being preached and went on to college to a place called Gordon College where A.J. Gordon was a part of that movement. And after that movement, I, I realized that what I was pursuing in my life was not exactly what uh, the Lord wanted for me. And I, I was like, okay, what's next? So you do what's next. And uh, what was next was to shift from becoming a doctor to getting a degree in psychology, and when I was done with that, I went, okay, what's next? <laughs> what it led me into was to be a, a part of an organization that went and realized that the schools that were founded uh, in, in, throughout New England that helped those who are wealthy, who are uh, influential, who were able to make change in this world rebuild their Christian roots. I just thought it was a youth group. 
I was a part of it in high school and college. I volunteered for it. But when I got to be a part of it and I met sons and daughters of senators and uh, tycoons and billionaires and people in Newport, Rhode Island and Worcester, Massachusetts and Concord, New Hampshire and uh, all over the place around that Boston area, I realized that the Lord was setting something up. He had another plan. He was planting seeds of the gospel along the way. So what? Coincidence? Maybe. But then the Lord called me off to seminary in this small little school that was planted with the idea that there could be an Anglican uh, institution that was countercultural, counter to the culture that was happening in the Episcopal Church at the time and start to raise people up with a biblical foundation, with a, a, a view toward mission and ministry. And Trinity was born out of that in Pittsburgh. And I got to be there for four years. So what now? Coincidence? I don't know. But after that, I was called to a church in Savannah, Georgia. In Savannah, I got to stand in the pulpit behind the likes of John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were the first early rectors of that parish. I don't know. Coincidence? Maybe. I don't know. From there, I got called to St. Paul's in Darien, where uh, a young priest became a, a staple in that area for that long time. He used to be a professor at Barrington College from where my wife came. Coincidence? I don't know. But Terry Fulham was the rector of that church in a time where he was contemporaries and friends with Chuck Irish here and the, the worlds that collided at that point that brought renewal to the Episcopal Church. You see a, a thread going through this? And from there, I got to, to be able to immerse myself in the, the life and mission of what was <clears throat> a faithful remnant, just like you folks. <laughs> the faithful remnant of things that have happened in the past because God's not through yet. God is not through yet. So what next? I end up in Woodbridge, Virginia, uh, filling in the footsteps of one of the faithful bishops who stood up at a time where we need to separate ourselves from the Episcopal Church and step away for the sake of the gospel. So we could tell that better message that the Lord was, instead of just gluing ourselves to the work of the world and allowing ourselves to conform to it, we renewed our mind by conforming to him and to his word. And so to be a part of that community and now to be called here back into a church that was part of the transformation of the Episcopal Church. And we see the, the footprints of that work that Chuck and Terry and others have done over the years all over the ACNA right now. What for? I don't know. Was it coincidence? I don't know, but I don't think so. <laughs> Thank you, Dean. I always need a straight man in the audience. Um, I know, because I see the handprint of God. God set these things up. He sets up circumstances and collisions of life that totally transform who we are and the circumstances that we have prayed into or sort of wrestled with. And we've saved the way the scriptures have said before, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. 
not going to let go till you bless me. Well, what am I saying all this for? Well, here we are. We're in the midst of a, a group of lessons that are trying to encourage the body to righteousness, trying to help them recognize that in times of unfaithfulness, in times of uncertainty, in times of brokenness, that we are still loved by a faithful God and his plan is still in place. He's not forgotten us. He's not left us behind. Paul is speaking to his young disciple and he's encouraging him Because he knows that he's not going to be around forever, but he's reminding him, remember, my child, remember that you're to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Remember to strengthen yourself daily in Christ Jesus. The whole point of why we're in this study about a rule of life is not so we can take on more rules. None of us need more rules in our lives. But the rule... (laughs) The focus is to keep ourselves Christ-centered. To be in a place where we're asking the question regularly, Lord, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? How would you have me pray? Well, the psalmist did it for us this morning, right? Praise the Lord. Put yourself into a mindset of thanksgiving. Put yourself into a mindset of gratitude for the Lord your God is able to do things that you can't ask or imagine. And let me tell you what it is, says the psalmist. The Lord is above all the nations of the earth. His glory is everywhere to be seen. He is seated high and he looks far down from the heavens and the earth. Why? Because he raises the poor from the dust. He cares about the lowly, the broken. He, he knows what our needs are before we even express them. He sits with princes He sits with the princes of his people, and yet he recognizes the ache, the agony of a barren woman as she rejoices that she's no longer childless. So where are you going in the story of of God's thread, of his better story? We get this constant word that comes in the Hebrew, and it's, it's called hesed. It, it means loyal love. God's loyal love is with us. And it's all over this text from the Old Testament that we have this morning. We have a story of Ruth and Naomi. And it's, it's a story that is much bigger than can be encapsulated here. Um, Ruth and Naomi are... are uh, Ruth is a Moabitist. She's, she married a Hebrew man. And after uh, her husband died... Ruth followed her mother-in-law. And uh, the Lord led her to marry Boaz, and she became um, the great-grandmother of David. Think God had a plan there? Well, what's the plan? We Israelites, we're pure. We can't mix with anybody. The Samaritans, they're damned, right? Well, let's put it in a modern context, right? We have separatist groups all over our culture and country. We have mindsets that exclude everybody. And we read in God's word that from the beginning it was his plan to take out of the most unlikely. Where was the Messiah to be born? The wise men asked. And Herod was like, huh? Let's look at the wise, let's look at the 
the um, teachers of the law, well, let's find out exactly what they have to say. And they scoured their books. Oh, you, oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. This tiny little place in Judah. Out of the stump of Jesse, out of the line of Jesse, out of the lordship, the kingship of David, would come the one who is mixed with, an, with other nations, who believed in other gods, who worshipped other directions, <laughs> but found the one true God. And so you have the story of redemption that came through something that was recognized in Ruth. As she looked to Naomi, she said, your people will be my people. And I will pledge myself, I will commit myself to you. Not knowing that in her faithfulness, she was recognizing that Naomi was somebody who blessed the Lord. She blessed the Lord because she knew where they were headed to, where she met they ended up meeting Boaz, was a place that was going to be a place of provision. We'll go to the place where God is blessing. Have you ever heard that, you know, trite little saying, you know, um, stand under the spout where the glory comes out? You know, you, you want, if God is handing out the goodies, let's get in line, folks. That's why we make such a big deal about anointing and appointing in the scriptures People are set aside. Land is set aside. Blessing is set aside so that God can pour that out upon his people. And if you want to be hesitant, you can stand and wait and watch it go by. Or you can get in line and trust that the Lord wants to. He wants to be able to bless us. He wants, uh, we, you know, when somebody gets ordained in our tradition, it is also tradition for uh, priests to go up to, to, some, to a new priest and ask for their blessing. Because we believe at that point in time there's an anointing that's been poured out upon them fresh by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get in line, right? We, we want an impartation of that blessing so that blessing can go on and grow and be spread out to other people. So in the day of the judges, uh, there was a famine and... Uh, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went on a sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Coincidence? I don't know. But maybe, just maybe, God was sending them there. And while they were in this country, the men died. Now, women, you, I, I thank God that we're not in a time where you are not left helpless if you were married and there's, there's no man around. We live in a time where women can be self-serving and self-sustaining and uh, I'm grateful for that. But in that day, women were discarded at that point in time. They were considered a, a, a blight on culture. And so they thought, well, let's go back to what we know. And the righteousness that is evident in Naomi's life was received with blessing because they knew who she was. They knew what she represented. They knew what she could give to the community. And so as that happened, here is Ruth who says to her mother-in-law, 
I'm not going back to what's familiar for me, to the people of Moab, because I'm going where you're going. I've seen you give thanks for God's provision, and I've watched the provision continue. I've seen you live through worse than losing your husband. And Naomi even says, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to provide sons for you because there was this tradition. And what's the tradition? The tradition is uh, a um, Leverite tradition that the, the brothers of a man, if a man died, his brother would marry his wife in order to keep the, the line going. So any child born to that wife after she remarries the brother of the man that passed, any of those children were to be considered the deceased sons in the line. And yet the Lord knows how to redeem all of this. And in the process, there was no one that would suit and take care of these women that were left without husbands. And along comes Boaz, who by right or purpose didn't need to marry anyone. But he chose to because he knew what the story would tell. And the story would be a story of redemption. I remember hearing a story of a kid who had fashioned in his uh, basement um, a, a sailboat, or, or, and he, he had craftily sewn the sails and uh, made everything, and he put it out in a lake one day, and he pushed it off, hoping that it would sail. And sure enough, a breeze came along, and off it went. And off it went so far that he never saw it again. He was walking along one day in the town that he grew up and he saw in the window a sailboat very much like the model that he had built. And so he went to the shopkeeper and he said, can I look at it? And he looks at it and he sees that it's his very sailboat. And he said, I made this sailboat with my own two hands. And the shopkeeper says, well, I'm sorry. I bought it from someone who came in and asked me if they could sell it to me so I could sell it in my shop, and it's going to cost you. And the kid comes back, and he purchases it with his own, own money, and as he's walking away, he says, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you, and second, you're my boat because I bought you. Well, if you think you have no value, if you ever doubt where you are and whether things are coincidental. In your life, you can say the very same thing. First, you were, you were uh, created because God made you. He knew you in your mother's womb. He loved you and crafted you and allowed you to be who you are with your deficits as well as your great achievements and abilities. Secondly, you're his because... He bought you with the cross. He bought you with his blood. He allowed you to have a life again because he wanted to redeem you. When I was a kid uh, growing up in Connecticut, we had redemption centers. Uh, re redemption was a word that was regular in our culture. Redemption is really not a word that we hear as much anymore. But it's a biblical theme that we need to to you know, be soaked in, saturated in telling other people, you have value. You're not fatherless. 
You're not purposeless. You're not, God is not done with you yet. Uh, there's a story of a, of a group of friends who are gathered on a, on a large English estate. The children were playing in the water, and suddenly the gardener hears that there's a cry for help, and he plunged in, and he saved the drowning child. That youngster's name was Winston Churchill. And his grateful parents asked the gardener, what would he do to reward him? He said, hesitated, and he said, I wish my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. And the parents of Winston Churchill said, we'll see to it. And they followed through on their promise. Years later, while Sir Winston was prime minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. The country's best physician was summoned, his name, Dr. Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered and developed penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener. You see, Churchill would later remark, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. That is where we are with Christ. We are redeemed by his work, and yet we were also purposefully created, handcrafted by his making when we were made. And the story is no coincidence that as Ruth and Naomi are together and they're not sure what's going to happen next as they wander from what they know to a country they don't know and, and live into, uh, not being sure what was going to happen again, the psalmist rings out with a story that says, God is the God who overturns the impossible, who helps barren women sing over the children that she has. God is the one who speaks things into existence when they're not. By his stripes, we someday will be healed when we stand in his presence in a new body in the new earth. That is true. And I rejoice that my aunt and my uncle and my uh, cousin Richie now are standing in his presence. They knew the Lord as Savior, and they stand completely restored, even with all of the antics of their lives. And there were a lot of antics there, let me tell you. And the truth be known is they, they know the fullness of what was there. But what I got to say to the congregation that was there still doing the antics God has a better way. He can tell a better story now. It's not for us to wait for, but us to tell people that his redemption is right here, right now. You have been bought back with a price so that you can live this life, not so you can wait until your death. You've been bought with a price so that you have the ability to transform lives that are around you who think that they're fatherless, helpless, worthless, nothing. And they ought to take their lives because there's nothing there to redeem. And that is as far from the truth as possible. And I know some of you have stories that it wouldn't be uh, out of anyone's thinking that you might think, I am worthless. God tells a better story. He tells a story that says, I transcend your circumstances. You have been 
adopted into a family of Christ in which you, all the rights and, and uh, abilities, all the uh, things that you would inherit are yours without question. You're not a lesser being. You're not a secondary child. You're not an afterthought. You are an heir to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is with his disciples and there uh, he tells a story about, well, he, he tells a story, he actually enters this village and he, while he's there, there are 10 lepers. I don't know if you've seen leprosy or anything like it. Um, I kind of felt like I was one with, with that big hole in my leg that is, thanks be to God, slowly clo closing up. Um, but I, I can't imagine having uh, open wounds and uh, lost body parts and, and uh, people avoiding you like the plague, literally. So there, there may, it may have seemed like there was no hope that the messenger of the Lord, the Messiah himself, would respond to their needs. But the ten lepers were there. They said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He doesn't say, well, let me pray a prayer. The Lord be with you and also with you. Let us pray. We hope that the, by the power of God that these wounds would heal over a 10-year period with the right salve and the right doctors and the right bandages and all of the things that were necessary. No, he says, get up and show yourselves to the priest. Instantaneously. The power of God come, came upon these people that were known in the community as the lepers, the, the outcasts, the ones that you just don't go near. They were ordered to holler as they were coming into any public place, unclean, unclean, unclean. Imagine that. Imagine being in a culture where you had to pronounce, you know, uh, whatever is, you know, when you had COVID. COVID, COVID. I'm infectious. I'm a walking infection. I mean, we can laugh about it a little bit because it was just so real. And yet, we lost people. It was very, very real. No matter how it came into existence, no matter what, what you are on the spectrum of, of how to deal with it, we're dealing with it. And we know that the Lord is working his purposes out still in the very midst of it. One of the lepers comes back and he says, Praise you, Lord. Praise you. You healed me. You changed me. How, how, do I, how, do I, how do I even begin, but how can I stop from praising you? And yet, I'm not really supposed to even be near you because I'm a Samaritan. I'm an outcast. Jesus goes, huh, you're an outcast. Weren't there ten that were with you? Where are the other nine? Don't put yourself down for being a Samaritan. You go tell the world. Because you have been elevated to be a child of the king. You've been elevated to a status that is beyond anything a culture or denomination or skin color or an attitude or a politic can overcome. We are to be freed 
by the blood of the Lamb, freed from all of those bounds. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Today we live in a culture that would like to deteriorate our, our faith, would like to tell us that the things that we do, the things that we say are coincidence, but I'm here to tell you, yeah, maybe. Maybe it's just coincidental. But if you have eyes to see and ears to hear and the ability to understand in your, <coughs> in your spirit, in your knower, God is setting all of these things up. I was a few months from asking Kristen to marry me and uh, brought her home for Easter. And after the Easter service, my father said, you need to follow this guy. You haven't done your taxes. I'm going to have him help me, but he's got all the forms. Follow him to Southbury. And on our way to the next town over where his office was, the, this tax man who was in our church, he was in his middle-aged mid, middle crisis car. He had a brand new Volkswagen Sirocco GTV, a little sporty thing. Like brand spanking new, I must have got it like two days before. And here we are, we're following, I'm following him, and a person three cars in front of him slams on their brakes and like an accordion. Boom, 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 boom. And I look down at the floor, and I look over at Kristen, and she's writhing in pain. And I look back at the floor, and I realize my foot is on the floor, to the floor, almost through the floor on my brake pad. And I got no brakes. Okay. Surmising the situation, the state police later, later said that, you know, he had no idea. He didn't, he didn't believe my story that my foot was on the brake because he didn't see any brake marks. He said, you must have hit the accelerator, not the brake. I said, I'm telling you what I know because I was so surprised that it happened and that I ended up crushing this guy's car. The backdrop to this story is my brother was the police officer on duty. He signed off the air and went up to check on a house that he was living at for a multi-billionaire who lived in New York City. And he was not reachable because it wasn't passed on to the next person who was to be the transmitter as calls came in. That guy who is supposed to be able to transmit to the next person where the local police were and how to catch them because they'd signed off the air, was at a dumpster fire 500 feet from my car accident. And he went, oh, I got to call Frank. <laughs> my brother comes racing to the scene. His new wife is the ambulance driver that shows up to take Kristen to the hospital. We get to the hospital, and my mother and father are there, and all this family drama. Does it sound familiar? I mean, you walk into this story of Ruth and Naomi, and you, you hear this family drama, and you're just like, oh my gosh, family drama galore, like incest and alcoholism and broken families and death. Lord, where are you going to, how are you going to redeem this? Well, up to this moment in the backdrop of all of this, I had been praying for eight years that my family would be reconciled. My parents and my brother had just decided that they hated each other over circumstances that divided them. And it was ugly. But at that moment, when I was in the hospital, my, my brother walks in and discovers that his daughter is with my parents. 
his daughter, who he was supposed to have that weekend, was with my parents because his ex-wife was at work. Circumstances, terrible timing, all of that stuff. My brother proceeds to tear into my mother, full uniform, saying words that no person of honor or duty or uniform should say, because he's mad. He's human. He's broken. He's hurting. And I'm, at that moment, so focused on Kristen, I have no idea what's going to happen next. Is the Lord there? Is he using the circumstances? Absolutely. From the moment I plowed into that car to the moment that I'm in the hospital and my brother walks down the hall after ripping into my mother, he says to Kristen, who he adored from the time he met her, he said, how are you? <laughs> I was like, what? Who are you, jo Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? I mean, you're just tearing into the woman that gave birth to you, who has cried nights after night after night when you've not come home, but you've been out playing around doing something. You, she lived through your, she's lucky she lived through your adolescence. And you're going to go, how are you? You turn around and you go back and you apologize. Before you come talk to my future wife, you go back there and talk to her and treat her like the woman that she is. Literally, that's what I said. My brother, for the first time in eight years, turned around, went and talked to my mom. All praise be to God because it wasn't a power that was in me. I'm the little Danny. I'm the little brother. I'm always the, you know, the comforter, the peacemaker. I don't speak up for anything. I just make things nice so it looks better. And in that moment, the Spirit of God gave me the what for, and I gave him the what for. That night, my brother and his current wife... Um, came to our house with the disguise of bringing coffee and donuts over to see how Kristen was doing, but sat for two hours and had a reconciling conversation with my parents. God sets these things up. Did it need an accident? Did it need somebody to go to the hospital? Kristen, we thought, broke her collarbone. It wasn't broken. It was just strained. Thanks be to God. We just, you know, all those things, you, you kind of go, how could you plan that, number one? And how is it that God possibly used all of those circumstances to create this moment? We heard a similar story with Pam, right? It was a car accident that, that got her in to have the, the CT that, that showed her, the MRI that showed that she had cancer. And it, it was time to go do something about it, which has given her time to live out those purposes of her being redeemed. God, your kinsman, redeemer, is right there to pick you up and give you purpose. Will you let him? Not only will you let him, but will you live into a life of thanksgiving, a life of gratitude by doing something about it? Let's show him. Let's show him how grateful we are. Amen?